sermon text this morning comes from Psalm 44. I'll be up here on the projector and invite you to turn in your Bibles. Um, really good churches will be able to tell you, uh, or good pastors will be able to tell you what page number it's in in the Pew Bibles, but I forgot to look. Uh, so I can tell you with great confidence though, that Psalm 44 is right in between Psalm 43 and 45. Uh, So I hope that's a help to you. Uh, So Psalm 44. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Salah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face, at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Our Lord, we ask then that now by your spirit you would arise, you would awake, and that you would speak to us through your word that we may know who we are and how we are to pray to you. Amen. The question at the heart of Psalm 44 is a question that 
you may have asked yourself and that you should have asked yourself. Namely, why must the church suffer? Not why does the church suffer, but why must the church suffer? And one easy answer is to say, well, it's because of sin. But of course, we know that faithful churches suffer. And so that is at the heart of our text this morning. That is the dilemma that is facing us. As we consider first then the church's great blessings, we need to understand that this is a psalm of the church. It is a corporate psalm, a song of the people sung together. Notice that throughout the psalm speaks in the first person plural. Uh, We have heard with our ears uh, them you set free them, our fathers. It's, there is, it's repeatedly comes back to the first person plural, we, us. There are, are, there's occasionally a reference in the, there's occasionally usage rather of the first person singular, such as in verse four, you are my king, O God. When we see that, what we ought to see that, when we read that rather, what we ought to read, ought to understand is that is either uh, turning from the plural to the singular, but that singular is representing the corporate voice, uh, I as a representing the whole, or it could possibly be taken as an individual expressing a corporate reality, what we're going through. But, but in overall, this is but what we need to see and what you need to understand is that this is a psalm for the people of God, for the church. And as I preach this morning then, you need to hear this as me addressing a group of people. Uh, it's, and, and, and I say that not so they say, oh, well, it wasn't really talking to me directly, so I'm off the hook. Uh, please take it deeply personally. But, but rather to understand that this is about who we are as a people, who we are as a people, and to understand your individual role then as an individual believer, as a church member, and what that means to be part of the church both locally and universally around the world. We begin by recognizing what God has done in the past, in days of old, in Israel's days of old. We have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old, in olden times. And Israel, of course, had experienced great blessing from God. And the language that is used here, what they're talking about in the first part of Psalm of the Psalm, verses one through eight, really speaks to, in particular, the entry of Israel into the promised land, and then quite possibly along with that, then the secondary conquest during the time of David in particular, Saul and David. You'll remember from diligently reading your Old Testament and taking notes uh, on it that first uh, Israel left Egypt during the Exodus and then under the leadership of Joshua they went into the promised land but during that conquest they did not drive out completely all of the heathen nations which were there. There was still a remnant. Then came the period of Judges not good, uh, and then, or ends not good, but then uh, comes the monarchy, the Lord establishes the monarchy, and under Saul and David, there was a conquest then, a, a driving out of almost all, and I don't want to say every last single person, but almost all of the pagan nations who were there, but also an establishment of Israel's borders, and firming it up really in almost an imperial way, not, not quite an empire, but certainly there were neighboring countries who were under Israel's control, and the Lord had done all of that. 
there's a recognition here that throughout this period, everything that Israel experienced, all the victories came from the Lord. And that these victories that God had given over the foes, over the enemies who would destroy Israel, who would kill God's people, that the Lord had given that victory, that he had blessed them. And they got into that point then, as we read in the Old Testament under the reign of Solomon, where Israel experienced great blessing and there's riches and wonders and all of these things that, that everyone was able to experience. And then so we are able then to boast in God, the psalmists say, the sons of Korah say. It is God who has done this. It is God who has given the victory. And the pious response is in verse 8. In God we have boasted continually. And we will give thanks to your name forever. The church has experienced great blessings both in Israel's days of old, but also in our days. As Christians and as Presbyterians in particular, we understand that the Old Testament time, that the times of the Bible is, are our times as well. That God does not have two people, uh, first Israel and then the church, but rather that the New Testament church is simply the expression of Israel in the New Testament era, a one body of people throughout time. Having said that, having said that, of course, though, we have a history that is not recorded in Scripture. There's been 2,000 years, give or take, since the scriptures were finally written and closed, and the canon was closed with the book of Revelation. And in those 2,000 years, we have experienced great blessing. The establishment of orthodox doctrine. Who is Christ? Uh, We look back at the time period of the early church trying to understand who is Jesus Christ? What does it mean that he came into the world that is both God and man? And the doctrine of Christ was something that had to be worked out, and that's no small thing. And so that we can understand our own salvation. Because if we do not know who our Savior is, we do not know from what we have been saved, and we do not know to what we are being saved, for what we are being saved. We don't know any of those things. Uh, Throughout history then, over the last thousands of years, we saw the Protestant Reformation as the church became distracted by this thing and the other thing, as false doctrines crept in. There was in the 1500s, in the Western church, beginning with, beginning far, actually long before Martin Luther, but coming to a head in the ministry of Martin Luther, and then after him, uh, the the other Protestant reformers, a recovery and the centrality of the gospel. The good news that Christ came into the world to save sinners, making that front and center of the ministry of the work, returning preaching to the center of the church's work. And that is, if nothing else, the primary legacy of Protestantism is to return preaching to where it ought to be, the proclamation of the gospel. And that's a glorious thing which we ought to celebrate. This is a blessing from God. Why is it that we get to live now that we get to live now in this time period in church history where, honestly, we have the best theology that's ever been. Uh, It wasn't. You go back 2,000 years, theology was a mess. Uh, The understanding of the Bible was was hazy, is messy. I mean, honestly, uh, we've been able to figure a great deal out. We understand the Bible better now than we did even 200 years ago as uh, we've studied and grown and matured and become wiser in our understanding of God's word as preaching has become even better and more centralized on the cross of Jesus Christ. All of these things are great blessings which the Lord has given to us. We can think even about that preservation of the gospel through the challenges of the last 200 years. Because just as the Roman Catholic Church 
became uh, captive to false ideologies and theologies, so too within the Protestant mainstream. Liberalism arose in the 20th century is a history of a battle for the true faith and for the supremacy of scripture over against doctrines which people like. Jesus is just a good teacher. There's no real sin and there's no hell and there's nothing to worry about, which of course is an utter falsehood because if, the, if, none of the, if there is no hell, if there is no sin, then Christ died for nothing. And what we need to worry about uh, is, is in fact the preservation of the truth of God's word. And people sacrificed much, and the Lord gave the victory. The fact that this congregation exists uh, as a part of the Presbyterian Church in America is a, our history. We have a history as a Presbyterian Church of America of standing for the truth of God's word over against those who would hide it, of those who would, of those who would cover it over. And, and, I'm, and I have to say then, just if it's not clear yet, that, that this morning in particular, I'm preaching as a Presbyterian to Presbyterians, because this is about the church. And we can't speak of the church without speaking of our particular identity as a church. Uh, we, um, we used to live in, in Colorado, and for those of you who do not know, Colorado Springs is either the Vatican or the Mecca of American evangelicalism. I'm not sure which. Uh, but, 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 that's, and, and if, but if you're not an evangelical uh, in Colorado Springs in particular, but in the rest of, but, but sort, of, sort of radiated outwards, the rest of Colorado, you get really irritated. So it's kind of fun just seeing some of the bumper stickers that people had. Uh, and, and, and amongst them, and so, so you may know that, that if... That if, if um, if, if Colorado Springs is, is Mecca, then that rock that everybody has to go around is, uh, is, is, the, is the headquarters of Focus on the Family. It's one of the bumper stickers that we had in Colorado said, focus on your own family. Uh, and which, honestly, it's funny. Uh, but it made me think a lot because there is no the family, right? What it, we can talk about the family, but, but actually there is no the family. There's only Families, there's, there's particular families, right? There's no family in concept or in general. It's your family, your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, right? That's, it's, it's very specific and it's concrete. In the same way, when we talk about the church, uh, we, we, can't re- we can talk about the church as the church around the world, all believers around the world, but that's not helpful in the sense if, if it's only vague and abstract. We have to talk about real people. And, and so we have to, and if we're going to talk about real people and real church experience, then we have to situate ourselves as a particular congregation with a particular history that is located within the broader history of Protestantism and of the Western church and of the church around the world. That's who we are, right? And so the history that we have then narrows down from the broad history of, of the church to Protestantism to Presbyterianism, and to the particular, to American Presbyterianism, and then the Presbyterian Church in America, and then Living Hope is like, like way down there at the, whatever the pointy part of a funnel is. That's us, right? It's these people in this room, but we have that organic connection to all those other people. And so we need to think about our history as a history that's very concrete, where God did real things for real people and really blessed us. That, this, that, that, that people came before us to make sure that the institutions of this denomination would exist so that within that institution, this congregation 
might exist. It might be planted, it might be blessed, it might grow, it might flourish. And just in this last year, now we have a building and all these other ways in which God has blessed us over the last 10 years. And we can say, where did that come from? Not from our sword, uh, particularly because most of you don't own swords, uh, but not by, by the metaphorical sword, not by our own strength, not by our own goodness, not by our own greatness, but God. God did this. God did this. God allowed this congregation to be established. He allowed the truth of his word to be preserved. God did all of this. And so throughout our history, both our Old Testament history and our New Testament history, we, as God's people, have received God's great blessings and therefore praised him alone for them. But against the church's great blessings, we have to juxtapose, we have to set against the church's suffering. And the church's suffering is great. Verses 9 through 16. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. For what is the history of Israel? It's a history. It's a history of oppression, of military defeat. There is a time when the people sinned and were cast out of the land. When he said, you've scattered us among the nations, that is literally the case as first the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah were taken off into exile into Assyria and into Babylon. As the people were scattered and they lost their identity. They lost their identity as as. Israelites, as Hebrews, as Jews, as a people of God, it was all gone. It was all dissipated and destroyed. And what was left was after the end of the Babylonian exile, we read Ezra and Nehemiah, just this tiny remnant left in Judea around Jerusalem, this tiny remnant of God's people. Even then, a mere colony. It would go on to be oppressed by all sorts of people. First, it was they were under the Persians, and then uh, in the in the inter, what we call the intertestamental period, the time period between uh, the, the the last of the prophets and the beginning of the New Testament, uh, underneath the Greeks and the Romans, there are all these other empires. They're always a colony of somebody, always under somebody's oppression. Even when there was a so-called king, that king was not able to rule with any kind of authority, but was only answerable to some to a more powerful emperor. They were a mockery. You made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. The bulk of Israel's history is not glory, but humiliation, of ignominy, not of boasting and pride and wealth. The church has experienced great suffering of old and in our time as well. Throughout the history of the New Testament church, there has been suffering, there has been martyrdom, there has been oppression, there has been victimization of Christians. There have been places where there are laws against preaching the word, there are martyrs, the, 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 new te- the, the, the ancient church. Ancient church history is a testimony of martyrdom, and that martyrdom continues to this day in most places, in many places rather, around the entire world. And what we need to recognize and what we need to acknowledge is what Psalm 44 says about that. Because it doesn't say, our enemies have done this. Rather, it says, you have rejected us and disgraced us. 
You have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. One of the problems of being a Presbyterian is that we have sound doctrine. And as such, right, what do, what do, we, what do we have as sound doctrine? Well, amongst our sound doctrine is the understanding that when Paul speaks, as we heard earlier, of foreordination and predestination in Romans chapter 8, what he actually meant was foreordination and predestination. That all this happened by God's plan. That all of this suffering is according to God's will. God is doing something. God is planning this. The Lord himself has allowed and permitted his church to suffer. And that makes some degree of sense when we read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, for example. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, both, not not at the very, very end, but certainly towards the end, have the same repetition of of, the same warning that is given, that if Israel is uh, faithful, then they'll be blessed by staying in the promised land. But if they are not faithful, if they rebel, then the Lord will send them warning after warning, uh, plagues and distress and enemies and famine and all of these things. And then ultimately they will end up in exile. Uh, you find that both, that warning, that lengthy warning, both at the end, towards the end of the books of Deuteronomy and of Leviticus. And as we read then the whole of Old Testament history, we see that it is exactly what we would expect for a people who do not hold to God's word in the way that they should, that they suffer and they are cast out. But that is all we need to understand because of God's plan, that the Lord had that, the Lord had foreordained that, and also for the faithful church. Because it is not just, when we say that we talk about the church's great suffering, the temptation is to say that, well, that's because of their sin. And that's certainly true, that there was sin that's involved. There's always sin involved because Christians are sinners. Every last Christian I have ever met is a sinner. And if you don't believe me, I would like to have a very, very long discussion with you about your sin because I have some thoughts. <laughs> right? Everybody. And so, it's, it's not a, so, so we expect, okay... People are not faithful, and so they disobey, and so, and so therefore they suffer, and so that makes sense. But we also say it's the faithful church that suffers. Because again, read the Old Testament. Along with, uh, along with the wicked, those who were faithful suffer. They suffered right alongside them. So it wasn't just Ahab who suffered, but also Elijah and Elisha, and the school of the prophets. It was Jeremiah, who was a faithful preacher of the word, who suffered because God's people were in rebellion. Everybody suffers right alongside. It is not just the unfaithful, but the faithful as well. And so so we read in verses 17 and following, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. The Lord brings suffering upon a faithful church, upon those who faithfully obey him. That's what the psalm is saying because it's true. The Lord sends that as well. Our heart has not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way. Unless you get 
overly Presbyterian and say, well, nobody can say that because really if everybody's a sinner, then nobody can truly say that. Well, that's also, then now you're getting way too Presbyterian. You've got to come back to true Presbyterianism. Or you recognize that it is still possible to be obedient. It's still possible to obey God. Sinners can continue to be sinners, but you can repent. You can act in faith. You can go to church every Sunday. You can raise your kids on the catechism. You do all the things that you're supposed to do as, as a good Christian and still be a sinful person. You can, as a sinner, be faithful to God's covenant, not, in, not, not live in open rebellion against him, live a pious life, and yet, and yet, suffering comes. Suffering can still come, as and often does come. In fact, as we look in the New Testament era, it seems that that is definitely the case. It's certainly the case as we look at the history of the church around the world, and the, rather the history of the church and as we look at the church around the world. If we look around today, I mean, I think it's certainly the case that as you look at churches that success and size are no indication of faithfulness to God's word. Uh, that we began, that the, the, the Presbyterian Church of America began as a small group. We've grown, but it's still a very tiny percentage of the American population. Uh, I think I did the math once, and there's a lot of zeros before the one percent. Like, and so you can do it on your own. But it's but basic. But we have like the, the Presbyterian Church in America. I think has around three hundred thirty thousand people, and that's and, and and America has around three hundred thirty million people. So that's do the math. Uh, you probably, I could get out a calculator right now, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, but that's, so it's small, small, a small remnant, and we see other churches that are less faithful that are, that are huge. And frankly, it's not just those that are liberal that are big. They're, they're slowly declining, but it's also those, many who would be called evangelical. Uh, we've, many evangelical churches, I've, we have personal bitter experience in my family of, of, of discovering that a lot of churches that claim to be evangelical are not preaching the gospel. Uh, it's, it's good advice. Bible verses are quoted, but, but we spent a period of time, I won't go into the de- why now, but like for a few months we were visiting evangelical churches um, in, in our neighborhood in, in Aurora, Colorado. And, it finally, and we just, and I knew, right, the band was just going to be crazy loud and I was just going to be irritated the entire time because I'm a Presbyterian. But, but at least I'm going to hear the gospel, right? And I was completely wrong. Uh, only in a couple, we found a couple churches, but they were small where the gospel was preached. Otherwise, just good advice. Like I was just waiting to hear about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. And it never came up. It never came up. And so finally, is it my kids who finally said, can we go to a church where, where, where they talk about Jesus in the sermon? Like, okay, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Um, and these are big churches, right? Because they got the money. They got the money for the huge band and the sound system that makes my ears bleed. I mean, I'm not joking. They were passing out earplugs. Like, literally, that happened. Um, you know, that, that's a, right? So that's, that's the show. But, but they've got plenty of people. They got all the services, and yet I, I couldn't hear the gospel there. It's not just that. And, and I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush, but I am saying that there is no apparent connection between the size of a religious venture and the faithfulness of the preaching. In fact, it's not just that. As we look around the world, it seems that the most faithful churches are those that are most 
persecuted. Because who are the most faithful believers in the world today? Where do you find them? You're thinking, but like, I'll tell you, Eritrea, North Korea, China, but you know, those people have it easy compared to North Korea and Eritrea, right? Those are the most faithful. You know why? They're obvious because if you're going to hold the apostolic gospel in a place where there is vicious persecution, like killing people persecution, like running over Christians with bulldozers persecution, you got to be committed. You're faithful. You're in if you're willing to be martyred. And yet those are the places where the church is most persecuted. There's a direct connection. And the more I think about it, the more you think about it, the more you realize, no matter how faithful you might be in your life now, like you're barely faithful compared to the faithfulness of persecuted believers around the world today. I mean, right? You're not... Odds are that you're not always jumping out of bed on Sunday morning and spending an hour in personal devotion, uh, making, getting ready for worship, making sure that you come in here really pepped up and singing. Having a second cup of coffee doesn't count, right? And these are people who risk their lives just to go to church. So it's clear, as the sons of Korah say here, that God sends suffering even to those who cling most to his promises. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. The faithful church suffers because the church belongs to God. Verse 22 Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why is it that the church suffers? For the sake of our Lord. Punishment for sins makes sense. You do something bad, you're punished. Right? That's a very basic logic of raising children or running a country, running a government. Do something bad, you get punished. That makes sense. But, by the same, but, but, but at the same time, so does suffering because of faithfulness. And verse 22 it helps us to understand that. It may not immediately make sense to us, may, may not immediately make sense to you, but that's because we tend to think in worldly and fleshly ways. We're not thinking with the biblical logic. In the biblical logic, you need to understand that the church is persecuted because we are joint heirs with Christ. That's why I read earlier, uh, began our reading earlier in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 17, if we are children, then heirs. So if we are children of God in Jesus Christ, adopted, uh, then, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Again, speaking as a Presbyterian to Presbyterians, one of the great benefits of Presbyterianism is that amongst all of the, all of the biblical confessions, uh, all of the confessions we alone uh, bring out, have an entire chapter in our Confession of Faith, have an entire set of questions in our large and shorter catechisms on the doctrine of adoption. 
So we bring the doctrine of adoption front and center, not that our brothers and sisters and lesser, well, lesser is not the right word, less blessed uh, communions, such as the Lutherans, the Anglicans, uh, the Reformed. Uh, anyway, those people, but we have a doctrine of adoption, we bring, and we need to hold on to that because we are adopted children of the Lord because we've been united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. In Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we have become the children of the living God. So when Christ died on the cross, he died for your sins. He was raised for your justification and so that you might be raised with him in glory on the last day. In so doing, you were entirely identified with him. And when you were given new life in Jesus Christ by the work of his spirit, you were united to him. You're united to Jesus Christ. So not just Jesus died for you, but you died with Christ. You were raised with Christ into newness of life. That's what it means to have new life. That's what it means to be born again, is to have new life in Christ. We are in Christ. We are united to Christ. And that's how it is that we are the adopted children of God. Now you are united to the Son of God. And in him, we are all sons of God. Men and women, boys and girls alike, are sons of God in the sense that we're united to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are his children, and as his children, then, we are heirs with him. We receive the inheritance of everlasting glory in the new heavens and the new earth, which Jesus receives because of his faithfulness from his Father. We receive that. That is what we are hoping for. That is what we are longing for. We are not people of this world. As Christians, as members of the church, our home is in the age to come. It is not in this present age. We are Christians first, Americans second. Probably third or fourth, actually, but we can right? That's our primary identity is always in Christ. Every other identity is secondary or tertiary, whatever it is. That is who we are. So we don't belong here because we have already inherited everything with Christ. Well, if we've inherited everything with Christ, then that's why Paul says, we are fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. In suffering, we suffer with Christ. Not for Christ, with Christ. Along with Christ, we suffer, we join in his sufferings. We participate in his sufferings because to suffer in this age is to die to this world. It is a testimony to the world that we don't need what they need. We do not want what they want because it is all temporary. It is all passing away. It is not worth dying for and is certainly not worth living for. Not power, not prestige, not numbers, not money, not fortune, nothing. Nothing that this present age has to offer is worth anything compared to what we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is as we are adopted in him as we are adopted in Christ then, that suffering becomes a testimony of our identity. And this is is 
why Jesus says what he says in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, this is part of Jesus' final night with his apostles before he is betrayed and crucified. And in John chapter 15, uh, verses 18 through 21, he says this to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Because you reject the world, the world rejects you. Because the world hates our Lord, they hate you. Because they persecuted him, they will also persecute you. Therefore, therefore, Romans chapter 8, in the ending of Romans chapter 8. Now, I hope that I am not the only person in this room who has struggled to make sense of the end of Romans chapter 8. Because we know, we, we know what Romans 8 is about, right? And where he's going in that. Uh, when, 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 especially when I read it earlier, uh, that, 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 it's, that, that the apostle is talking about how our union with Christ, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, that, that nothing's going to get in between us. And then he says, but, is, but, but so he says in, in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? None of those can take us from Christ. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Does that make sense? Like, how is that reassuring? Paul? (laughs) And, I mean, one of the... When you do what I do in in exegesis for a while, you start figuring out, you realize really quickly that the Apostle Paul was probably the best exegete, the best, the best um, interpreter of the Old Testament who's ever lived. And that's, it's not worth fighting over, but I'm, I'm going to say probably. If you've got another candidate, we can talk later. But he's quoting Psalm 44, verse 22. And here's what he's getting at. Being killed, being sheep to be slaughtered, is proof that God loves us. It is proof that we belong to God. Because God, Psalm 44, it is God does this to his people. God allows his people to suffer. And so if we are suffering, if we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, that is evidence, that is confirmation and so one way to read Psalm, I'm sorry, one way to read Romans chapter 8, verse 35, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword, shall any, none of those things will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, right? They can't get in between us and the love of Christ. I'm beginning to suspect he's making a different point. It's not that none of those things can get in between us and the love of Christ. Rather, they're demonstrations 
of the love of Christ, that we are suffering for Christ and with Christ. If we are suffering tribulation, if we are suffering the sword, if we are suffering famine, if we are suffering persecution, then therefore it must be because the Lord is reminding us that we are suffering alongside our Savior. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We conquer this world, not with a sword, not with guns, not with armament, not by having more money than everybody else, not by having political power, not by gaining the White House or the halls of Congress or anything else. We are conquerors in Christ. And only in Christ, only in the gospel, only in the promises of God in Christ Jesus. We are conquerors in suffering. In suffering as a testimony to the world of the God who is and of his kingdom which is to come. And so tribulations and sufferings do not invalidate your hope. Instead, they confirm the promises of Jesus Christ to you. They confirm his love for you. Therefore, therefore, beloved, cling to the church's only hope. And our hope, of course, is Jesus Christ. But here I mean our hope in terms of what we are to do. How ought we to live? You ought to learn suffering's lesson and cry out to the Lord. For what is the church? We are, verse 9, humiliated. Psalm 44, verse 9, we are humiliated. Verse 11, we are scattered. Verses 13 through 16, we are mocked. Verses 24, 25, we are distressed. Hope only in the Lord and cry out to Him. In the suffering, in the distress, cry out to Him. Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the Lord. Boast only in God and look to him alone for deliverance. And understand that the trials of this life do not end when the church learns to trust. Right? That's simply not the case. We don't look around and say, oh, well, if you just have enough faith, then your suffering will end. You know who says that? People who have not read the Bible. Right? Because it just does not work like that. Again, it often seems those who are most faithful suffer the longest and the hardest. Those who are trusting in the Lord alone seem to have the least. And so the trials are going to continue for individual believers and for God's people. This is where then we can see our need to, to, to take verses 23 through 26 very seriously. Um, you know, I believe in, in reading the Psalms and singing the Psalms and in praying the Psalms, if for no other reason than the fact that nobody has the nerve to say these things to God. Can you imagine if Danny Brewer in the prayer just now had said, to, oh Lord, why do you hide your face? Not only would everybody else on session have had a cow in the sanctuary, everybody else would have been flipping out and saying, well, I really hope we don't have any visitors here because they're not coming back. 
They'll know that we don't really trust God. This is how we have to pray. And this is how we must pray. Because if you're not, if you're not suffering, then you've got the time to pray. People who are suffering are busy suffering. Right? People who are not suffering got time on their hands. And so there's an immediate application for the local church where I think we tend to be pretty faithful in praying for one another. When somebody in the congregation is suffering and going through hardship, uh, yes, you bring, you bring the meals and you encourage, but you also are praying for them. That's something that we do. And I can say, as, as somebody who's, me and my family have in, in different times, and certainly lately more than other times, have been on the receiving end of people's prayers. Like the, the, when Paul talks about when we don't know how to pray, I think he's talking about something else, particularly the Spirit prays for us, but it's also one way that in suffering, it's, it's sometimes it's just really hard to pray. When you are suffering, and whether that's physical suffering or other things are going on, it's hard to know how to pray, but knowing that others are praying for you, Right? Sometimes I think that the Spirit prays for, for individual believers by praying through other believers. And that's part of our, our duty then is to pray like this for one another within the congregation. But also then, also then, again, and this is why I talk about, we, we can't, why I say we can't talk about the church in the abstract as an idea. When we say the church, we are talking about people. We're talking about people, people, like flesh and blood people with, with, with fingers and, and, and with eyeballs and stuff, like you, right? Regular people, and, 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 and you need to get into that and hold on to that because where we need to be crying out, in particular then, is for our brothers and sisters who are suffering for the sake of the gospel who are really suffering. And I think it's not just that you should take on the words of Psalm 23. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? But it's also getting to the point where those are the words that make sense. When you realize that in order to preach the gospel, pastors in Eritrea run the risk of being imprisoned in, in cargo containers and left out in the sun for weeks on end to bake in there, just, just to preach. Their families their families being imprisoned, and all those other things. When you realize the sacrifices and the sufferings of our brothers and sisters, it ought, it ought not simply to touch your compassion, but to raise your ire. You should be angry for. And therefore, in that anger for, justice, that love for your brothers and sisters to cry out to the Lord. Why are you sleeping, Lord? The believers underneath the throne in glory are crying out when they look at the church and saying, how long, O Lord? 
How long, O Lord? And if the saints in glory can cry out in that manner, so ought we. Why are you sleeping, Lord? Rouse yourself. Don't allow this to go on anymore. Drive back. Cast down the wicked. Destroy them. Better that the gospel sweeps sweeps again through China, that Pyongyang again becomes the Geneva of Eastern Asia. But if not, then let them all be cast down so the church church might be safe and secure and be able to preach the gospel freely and without fear. But this is how we must pray. Maybe not for yourself. You look at these words and say, I think God is looking at me with favor. But there are people, there are brothers and sisters for whom you ought to be crying out. Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Because we are one people. We are part of this congregation. Living Living Hope Church is a particular congregation where, yes, we're all bound together into one body. But the entire church is one body. And where one part of the church suffers, the entire church suffers. And it is our privilege as this part of the church, in this country at this time, to not suffer, then it is our duty to pray all the more vigorously for the rest of the church who do suffer. The trials will continue. The suffering will continue until our Lord comes in glory. And that is why we pray. Verse 26, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. We long for the return of our Lord in glory. We long for the return of our Lord in glory. If that is not your chief desire, if that is not your greatest hope, I want to suggest two things. One, you may be too comfortable in this world. But two, you may not love your brothers and sisters who are suffering as much as you ought. Because honestly, I feel like I'm okay until the resurrection, you know? I know where my next meal's coming from. The guard, you know, the, 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 the stormtroopers are not knocking on my door to carry me away for preaching this, this sermon or any other sermon I've ever preached. None of that's going to happen. I'm doing okay. And if Jesus delays his coming, my back hurts, but okay. But there are people around the world who do not have any time to spare. We have brothers and sisters in the church. We have brothers and sisters in the church for whom every moment in this world is agony. And so we need our God to either deliver them now by his mighty hand through his providential means or to come back now and make things right and to reward them for their testimony and for their sufferings.
this, this is who we are. This is who we are. We are the suffering church. And so because, because of God's steadfast love in Jesus Christ, know he will redeem you. Know he will redeem us from all the sorrows of this life and the world to come. So cry out to the Lord. Cry out, rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And then in God we shall boast continually and give thanks to his name forever. Amen. Our Lord, indeed, we pray that you would rouse yourself, that you would testify that you have not rejected your church, that you have not rejected your people, but instead that you would show your mighty arm that by your strong right hand you would cast down the evil from their places of power and oppression. We pray, our God, that you would set your people free, for we are free. We know the great privilege of gathering here in corporate worship. We know what it is to serve you without fear all the days of our lives. We pray that your people around the world may as well. Our Lord, remember those who bear witness, who are the bear bear the witness of martyrdom and suffering to us in the church. Remember the parts of the church that are suffering even as you have blessed our part of the church here this morning. And our God, we pray, help us to see who we are as part of your people and help us to love all your people as much as we love one another, that we may indeed have the boldness to pray to you with the words of the Psalms. Arouse yourself, rise up, Come to our help and redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Amen.